Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? Have you heard about this secret library that's in uh, Syria? Uh-uh, what is it? Well, hiding below the town of Daraya, which is this suburb of Damascus, there's a library of over 14,000 books. You see, during the terrible siege of the area, people have gone into homes and the buildings that were damaged by all these attacks, and they've managed to retrieve these books to keep in this library. Oh, wow. I mean, it's been such a heartbreaking situation there for years now, but visitors to the library have found at least a temporary escape from the devastation by coming down there to browse the shelves and, and just read for a bit. As one visitor told the BBC, in a sense, the library gave me back my life. I would say just like the body needs food, the soul needs books. That's incredible. It really is. And, and while this is obviously an extreme example, it's, it's amazing how libraries have served as an escape for people for so long now and how they've been a place for self-improvement and community and entertainment for so many. And that got us thinking, how did the modern library come to be, and how are libraries evolving? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, still on the run from library fines that are way, way <laughs> overdue. What did he say? It's been like 17, 17 years. years. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. All right, well, Mango, before we get into the episode, we've had more than one listener ask if I was actually saying your name correctly. And the answer is yes, so there's enough to that. <laughs> I mean, I've known you for more than 20 years now, so I feel like it's kind of like when, you know, kids just say a name for a grandparent, you have to accept, like, that's what it is. So if they say <laughs> Mammal, it's Mam. In fact, should I just call you Mammal? Does that work? I think so. Anyway, we've had some requests for you to say your own name, so let's just go ahead and do this. So you want to go for it, and then listeners will know how bad I am at saying your name. Sure. It's uh, it's pronounced Kyle Jones. Oh, really? All this time? <laughs> no, it's Mungish. 
Okay, so there it is. And I wanted to actually let you know that you're saying my name incorrectly because in the part of Alabama where I'm from, it's pronounced wheel. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now we both know. <laughs> All right. Well, back to Tristan's late fees and things that are long overdue today. We're finally getting into a topic we've wanted to cover for a while now, and that's libraries. Yeah, so you and I have learned so much throughout our lives thanks to libraries, and we really wanted to kind of return the favor by highlighting the best facts and stories about them we could find. All right. So, Mango, you mentioned that you sort of feel indebted to libraries for being such a helpful resource over the years. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Tristan and many others are indebted in a different kind of way. (laughs) But one thing that's become clear for me over the years is, and especially working on this episode, is that pretty much everyone feels that way about libraries. In fact, to get specific, a full 91% of Americans ages 16 and older say that public libraries are important to their communities and that those communities would be negatively impacted if libraries were to close down. That's at least according to a 2013 study from the Pew Research Center. Wow. So it's honestly a little surprising to hear that the approval numbers are that high for libraries. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I, I tend to think of them as being in the same boat as like, I don't know, the postal system. You know, it's this, like, long-running public institution that's become uh, a little more ignored in the digital age. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, the number of people who approve of libraries, in theory, is significantly higher than the number of people who actually use them. Mm -hmm. So even though 91% of citizens felt libraries were good for their communities, only about 53% had actually visited a library or bookmobile in the last 12 months. No, I mean, I do feel like if half a population is using a largely government-funded resource like that, it's it's really not that bad. Mm-hmm. Though the visitor count has fallen further since 2013, when Pew published another library study just last year, the number of people who had visited a physical library in the past 12 months had fallen to about 44%. And has the popularity of libraries also dropped since uh, 2013? No, I mean, that's the craziest part. So Pew asked the same question about community impact in 2015 and found that public support for libraries had remained at that same sky-high level, which is great, but it does raise the question, if if just about everyone considers libraries to be a valuable resource, why do we find fewer people using them? Yeah, so I actually did some digging on that, and at first it seemed like the reason for the decline in visitors was, you know, due to technology and these technological shifts. And maybe like this growing preference for e-readers and tablets. Yeah, and and that was the Pew's takeaway as well. But I I guess you're saying there's something else might be at play here as well. Yeah, so there's this independent federal agency called the Institute of Museum and Library Services. It's IMLS. And every other year, it surveys librarians all over the country to get a better sense of how things are going in the industry. And one thing that the agency shows is that the revenues for libraries started dropping during the Great Recession in 2009 and have continued to decline ever since. And this revenue is like this money from late fees and book sales, or, or what are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But most of the revenue loss is due to budget cuts from local and state governments. And whenever they need to drum up more cash for public projects, libraries are just an easy target. And so how does that relate to fewer people visiting the library? Well, the IMLS puts it this way in their report from 2012. Quote, we found that as investments, such as revenue, staffing, and programs increased, so did critical use measures such as visitation and circulation. In the same way, as investments were reduced, mostly in reaction to post-recessionary budgetary reductions, we saw decreases in library use. So basically, the better funded a library is, the more people use it, which actually makes a lot of sense, right? I, I mean, more money means more staff members and longer hours, newer computers, not to mention more Harry Potter books on the shelves. 
So while libraries do stand to benefit from better publicizing things like their ebook lending programs, which I think something like 90% of libraries offer now, if we really want them to live up to their full potential, then I guess it's up to the public to make sure that we properly fund them. Exactly. And while we're on the subject of a library's full potential, have you ever heard of this idea called the third place? No, what's that? So it's actually a community building concept that a sociologist named, uh, I think his name is uh, Ray Oldenburg, and he outlined it in the late 1980s. And his thinking was that society fosters healthy, happy citizens if it helps them strike a balance between, you know, the time spent at home, at work, and in neutral public spaces. So the idea is that a person's home is their first space, their workplace is their second place, and their third places are the stimulating public spaces where People gather to have conversations or to take part in some shared activity or just to be in the presence of other people. So really everywhere except the home and the office is <laughs> third place or what? No. I mean, so some of the historical examples Ray cited were French cafes and maybe American taverns during their respective revolutions. And you could think of diners and coffee shops as modern stand-ins. But okay. third places can also be parks or rec centers and churches. The list goes on, but it doesn't mean that any place can be a third place. So, for example, it, it's got a few rules. Uh, it's got to be somewhere that's universally accessible, both in terms of proximity and price. So a third place is some, somewhere that costs nothing or at least not much. And the other main requirement is that it's somewhere welcoming where social and economic status don't really matter and where the environment is so comfortable that people develop a connection with the space. All right, I think I get it. So so a library is kind of a third place that's focused on learning. And, and I guess that's always been the case, even back when libraries did little beyond lending print books. But it seems especially true under today's model where libraries are offering community classes and provide access to things like you know, everything from sewing machines and spinning wheels and GoPro cameras, all kinds of things mm-hmm. now. Right. And now more than ever, libraries are becoming places where people can learn a new skill or collaborate on a project. Yeah, I guess you've uh, you've sold me on this third place thing, Mango. And that, that really might be the way to think of libraries as we go forward. And I think so, too. So there's a British journalist named Caitlin Moran who wrote a really great piece about libraries for The Times of London. And this was back in 2012. Apparently, the British government is a little farther along with their library budget cuts than we are in the States. So nearly 10% of England's 4,600 public libraries have closed since 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so Caitlin wrote about what it was like to see all these old public libraries being shuttered. And one part in particular really speaks to how libraries exemplify this third place and their benefits to society. She writes, quote, A library in the middle of a community is a cross between an emergency exit, a life raft, and a festival. They are cathedrals of the mind, hospitals of the soul, theme parks of the imagination. On a cold, rainy island, they are the only sheltered public spaces where you are not a consumer but a citizen instead. A mall, the shops, are places where your money makes the wealthy wealthier. But a library is where the wealthy's taxes pay for you to become a little more extraordinary instead. A satisfying reversal, a balancing of the power. That's pretty awesome. And, you know, I like to how she's reflecting both on her own experiences with libraries, but also what libraries are to other people. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately what's going on with the this 91% public approval rating that we talked about before, I guess. So what do you mean by that? Well, I read in that Pew report that from last year that over three quarters of adults in the U.S. have been to a library at some point in their lives. So to be sure, some of the goodwill people feel toward libraries comes from their own personal experiences with them. Even if someone hasn't been to a public library since childhood, they probably have some happy nostalgia for those early visits. And I guess that gives them a positive view of libraries in the present. But I also think that people just like the idea of a public space that's set aside for reading and learning, which 
you know, basically is what everyone thinks of when they think about libraries. It's kind of like even if we don't use them, we still take comfort in having the option and knowing that these places are making a difference in the lives of the people around us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds right to me. And there's something in the concept of the library that really speaks to us on this fundamental level. It's like we want freedom and we want to satisfy our natural curiosity. So what could be better than this big open space to explore any avenue of thought you want? Yeah, after all, I mean, there's a reason libraries have cropped up in just about every civilization for the last few thousand years. And I guess the only problem is that we aren't always as good to them as they are to us. (laughs) That's for sure. But the funding threats and reduced foot traffic that our libraries face now don't seem nearly as bad when you look at the rest of our messy track record with libraries. Yeah, now that we've gotten a sense of where libraries are today, we should definitely talk about their history and how they've been developed and also destroyed over the centuries. But first, let's take a quick break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the shockingly long history of libraries, and I do mean long. So, in fact, libraries are so old, they even predate books. (laughs) The oldest library ever discovered dates back to the 7th century BC. It was the private library of this Assyrian ruler, and it contained over 30,000 tablets inscribed with cuneiform. And many of the library's tablets were just archival documents or religious texts, but there were some early literary works sprinkled in, too, including the famous Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, I I like that literature was included in that one because it it helps strengthen this claim that it's the oldest library. I mean, ancient civilizations didn't really distinguish between archives and libraries. So 
it can sometimes get a little bit dicey when we're trying to decide what should or shouldn't be considered one today. Mm-hmm. For example, archaeologists have uncovered similar collections of Assyrian clay tablets that date back even farther, but you know the contents are mostly records of various business transactions and things like that. So you couldn't really call it a library, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it sounds more like a records room or something. But uh, another thing that might lend a bit more cred to the Royal Library I mentioned is that its contents were largely amassed through the conquest of other territories. So the Assyrians would loot texts from the temples of Babylonia and other nearby regions and, and then just add them to the private collection. So it really was this effort to compile a wide range of knowledge and text from different sources rather than just someone's personal business archive. I mean, I guess it was for a good cause, <laughs> but, you know, building something as peaceful as a library through conquest just feels a little off to That's me. That's true. I think I'm more on board with the uh, Library of Alexandria's approach. So uh, until it was famously burned to the ground during the Roman conquest of Egypt back in 30 B.C., the library held something like 400,000 scrolls. And people had moved from clay tablets to papyrus at this point. But you know, the scrolls weren't the spoils of foreign conquest. Instead, the Egyptians waited for foreigners to bring text to them. According to the Greek physician and philosopher Galen, King Ptolemy of Egypt ordered the scrolls of any visiting ships to be seized and painstakingly copied into manuscripts. Mm-hmm. But the part that I found funniest was that Ptolemy kept all the originals and added that to the library and then made the visitors take the copies instead. <laughs> well, one thing I was struck by while researching is how so many characteristics we associate with libraries were relatively late additions. So even when scrolls gave way to books, libraries still looked really different from how they do today. For instance, did you know the practice of shelving books vertically with their spines facing out didn't take hold until the Middle Ages? Mm. I mean, the closest things to public libraries in those days were monasteries, but the monks who lived there didn't really want to share their books with one another. So they actually hoarded books in their private workspaces, going so far as to chain the books to their desks. I mean, we've mentioned this before in the World Records episode, but the books were later moved to communal desks where everyone could use them, but they were still chained up to keep them from disappearing. (laughs) I mean, everybody knows that monks have sticky fingers, though, right? <laughs> so so when did the monks switch to more of a vertical storage? When they got sick of hearing all those rattling chains, I think. Uh, right, right. As more and more volumes were added to the monks' collections, the books had to be piled on top of each other, which made it just really cumbersome and noisy to remove them from one another. But even after going vertical, books still weren't displayed with their spines out. They were stood on their edge opposite the spine or even placed vertically, but with the pages facing out instead of the spine. Oh, wow. I mean, hiding the spine seems like the worst idea. You'd have to pull every book off the shelf just to find the one that you were looking for. Yeah, but you've got to think about this back then. Like, printing on book spines didn't really start appearing until 1535. So in the meantime, people had to come up with their own ways and life hacks to deal with this confusion. And one early solution was to draw identifying marks and designs on the thick of the pages, which is actually called the forages of a book, by the way. Mm. So, for example, there was this Italian doctor who had a friend's nephew illustrate all the four edges of his books, and he'd put scenes on there that depicted the book's subject matter. The other popular solution was to wrap a title label across a book and and tie it on with the chain. Again, with the chain. <laughs> I mean, these people must have been thrilled when printed spines finally came out. But, you know, while we're on that subject, I, I also came across a surprisingly late addition to libraries, which is really the concept of lending or circulating books. So most of the ancient and medieval libraries we've been talking about were private. They were either reserved for the use of royalty or maybe clergy. And, you know, even though there were some libraries that were open to the public or at least the portion of the public that was literate, they were only allowed to reference the books, not to borrow them or read outside the library. And, Hmm. 
In fact, the lending library concept that we're so familiar with, that didn't catch on until around the 18th century or so. And that's when, you know, public libraries started to crop up in, in England and in France. Yeah, there's another uh, precursor to public lending libraries in the U.S., and they were called subscription or membership libraries. And they were funded by fees and donations from paying members. So apparently there are still like 20 or so membership libraries left in the U.S., but Back in the late 18th and 19th centuries, they were all over the place. Yeah, I wasn't aware of these until we started doing our research, but but Ben Franklin started one in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, that's right. It was called the Library Company, and it was the first of its kind in the American colonies. Franklin started it in 1731, along with a like-minded group of scholars that he routinely met with to, you know, talk politics or philosophy and other smart stuff. And Franklin's group needed a means of obtaining more reading material for the discussions. But books were super expensive and hard to come by. So his reading club pooled their money and they started soliciting new members who could each contribute money to help grow the library's collection. Yeah, but, you know, before anybody accuses Ben Franklin of being too elitist, we we should point out that he also had a hand in establishing the country's first public library. So this was back in 1790. Franklin caught wind of a town in Massachusetts that had named itself after him. So he decided to reward their flattery with a gift. Now, the town actually asked Franklin to donate a bell for their steeple, but he nixed the idea in favor of a collection of books, <laughs> and he declared that, rather obnoxiously at least, that sense was preferable to sound. Yeah, there's nothing elitist about that. Not at all. Well, the town of Franklin definitely wasn't elitist because the residents took a vote on what to do with those donated books, and they decided to make them available to everyone. And with that, America's first public lending library was born. That's pretty great. But, you know, we can't really talk about the history of U.S. libraries without mentioning Andrew Carnegie. His donations made a huge impact on library development and not just in the States, but throughout the whole world. Yeah, it's true. I mean, everyone remembers Carnegie as this wealthy industrialist and man about town, but he was also really philanthropic and he gave tons of money toward projects aimed at making the world a better place. And I'd have to say his greatest gifts were the astounding 2,509 so-called Carnegie libraries that he funded over just a 50-year period. Yeah, so there were 3,500 public libraries in the U.S. by 1920, which is a crazy amount of expansion in the 150-year years so since uh, the first one in Franklin. But uh, of those 3,500 libraries, just shy of half were paid for by Carnegie. That's incredible. It really is. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah, I think what I like best about the story is why Carnegie did all this in the first place. So according to his autobiography, he fell in love with reading as a young boy in Scotland. And he would regularly borrow books from the Tradesman's Subscription Library, which his father helped to start. Then years later, Carnegie moved to Pittsburgh with his parents and got a job at the local telegraph company. As luck would have it, his employer actually had a private library that he allowed his workers to borrow from on Saturdays. And this just changed Carnegie's world. I mean, here was this wealthy businessman lending his personal books to a bunch of blue-collar kids, you know, just so they might have a shot at bettering themselves. And Carnegie knew that without that act of kindness, all that knowledge would have stayed beyond their reach. And that's when he resolved that if he ever struck it rich, he would use his wealth to establish free libraries. And he definitely kept his word, right? Even today, almost all of the Carnegie libraries in the U.S. are still standing, and over half are still in use as active libraries a lot of them in lower middle-income areas. Yeah, and Carnegie actually had another lasting impact on libraries that I want to talk about. But before we get to that, let's break for a quiz. (music) 
Okay, Mango, so since today's episode is about libraries, we decided to look for one of our listeners that had a library card to come on and take a quiz, and we found one. He's uh, he's also somebody that spent a ton of time in libraries working on a couple of fascinating oral histories, and we'll talk about those. But Brian Abrams, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Hello, thanks for having me. And for full disclosure, Brian is one of our longtime friends, worked with us on several projects in our mental floss days. And uh, has also, as I mentioned, tackled a couple of really fascinating oral histories and is working on another that we can't talk about just yet. But two of them, one was an oral history of David Letterman's top 10 list, and another was an oral history of the movie Die Hard. Die Hard. (laughs) So cool. So actually, I'm curious, Brian, can you just tell us a little bit about when you decided to tackle these? Like, how did you decide to do oral histories on these two very different things? That's uh, that's actually a, a really interesting question, it's, and it's one that's um, easy to answer. I was given a contract to do them, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, you know me. Um, that's okay, fascinating. Well, the sun shines, as they say. <laughs> Sounds like you had a real passion for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, diehard posters all over my walls. Um, but it's no, it's, a, but, it's amazing to me who you got to talk to you. Like uh, you got former um, right presidents of NBC for the, the David Letterman one, and like all these celebrities for the Die Hard. Can you talk a little bit about how you can actually approach those people? Yeah, um, it's actually really difficult. I think that you know, I, I think a lot of oral histories are sort of done in. In a, in a very authorized way, you know, the author or the author's people, they go to, you know, the top exec, right? The, maybe, you know, if you're going to do an, an oral history on, say, Saturday Night Live, you kind of, you get the okay from Lauren Michaels, and then you can go around and talk to all the usual suspects who were there over the sure. years. And I did not do that. I was working on the outside in, and it was very difficult, and it took a lot of time to finally wrangle one by one uh, of all these people that sort of make up the quote story of Die Hard, for instance, which, um, you know, it, it took a long time. I mean, I probably needed, you know, three dozen sources before, say, one of the main stars or one of the studio execs would, would be willing to, you know, take my phone call. Um, but that was a, I mean, not to disparage Letterman, Letterman's a great story, but you've got me thinking about Die Hard. Um, again, because of all the posters on my wall. Right, of course. <laughs> um, you know, that was such a weird constellation of a story. It wasn't just about the making of the movie, which wasn't really a controversial production, um, but just sort of the, the ways in which the producers got to that point and the ways that sort of Bruce Willis found a stardom. It's all, it's all really fascinating. Yeah, he, his name wasn't even on the movie posters, right? Isn't that part of the story? Yeah, there's, that, that's true. The, the, the original one sheets, I think they wanted they, the studio was worried that he, Bruce Willis, who had just, you know, he was leaving TV. He had a hit series, Moonlighting, but then he had a couple of movies uh, that were not great. Well, Blind Date came out; it wasn't great at the box office. The second one was called Sunset, and it bombed. And they were worried that he was kind of box office poison, and so they wanted to make the building the star. Uh, on the yeah, on the original on the original one sheets, yeah, that were distributed to the theaters. That's pretty crazy. Wow, that's pretty wild. Well, it's uh, it's it's exciting to think about the ones that you're working on in the uh, the coming years. So we look forward to those. But we can't let you go without putting you to the test with a quiz. So so what quiz do we have for Brian today, Mango? 
Uh, because he has a library card, we're going to play a game called Name That Librarian. All right. <laughs> that's what you've earned. So, so we'll put <laughs> 60 seconds on the clock. You got your timer ready, Mango? Mm-hmm. We're going to list off some clues, and we'll see how many of these librarians you can name in a minute. So are you ready, Brian? Oh, I'm so glad I called. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here we go. You got your 60 seconds ready? Mm-hmm. All right. The time. Does the time start with me beginning a question or when I finish the first question? Beginning. This, this is important. I've never known how yeah. we do our 60-second quizzes. Okay. That's the kind of power Mango has around here with the control of the timer. All right. Here we go. Question number one. This former librarian famously tied a key to a kite to try to understand electricity. He also invented bifocals. Well, that sounds like Benjamin Franklin. Mm -hmm. All right. This former librarian wrote A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, that would be Hank Kingsley. (laughs) (laughs) Madeline Lengel. All right. This former librarian went on to become the first director of the FBI. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, what's his face? J. Edgar Hoover. You got it. This former librarian wrote several beloved children's books, including Ramona Quimby, age eight, and The Mouse and the Motorcycle. Beverly Cleary. You got it. This former librarian became a communist revolutionary. He's known as the founding father of the People's Republic of China. Oh, would that be uh, Mao Zedong? Mm-hmm. You got it. This former librarian was actually named Charles Dodgson. He wrote Alice in Wonderland. I think it's Lewis Carroll. Mm-hmm. All right, let's rush. Let's get one more. This former librarian and first lady was married to the 43rd president of the United States. Laura Bush. Mm-hmm. You got That's it. Right. How did Brian do? He did great. He only got one wrong, which entitles him to a certificate of genius and an official part-time genius T-shirt, one of the smartest ways on the market to cover up your torso. Congratulations. All right. Great job, Brian. I'm honored. Thank you very much. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. 
Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Okay, Will, so besides making it much bigger, what else did Carnegie do for the U.S. library system? All right, well, this is going to sound a bit exaggerated, but really, he revolutionized the whole way libraries work. So before Carnegie, most libraries operated according to what's called a closed stacks policy. And under this closed model, patrons weren't allowed to browse and select books from the collection by themselves. After all, there was nothing like, you know, anti-theft sensors or cameras in Mm -hmm. those days to help a library's collection keep from walking away. Instead, people had to ask a librarian or a clerk to either, you know, retrieve the specific books they had in mind or just take a gamble and leave it to the clerk's discretion to choose something for them. I love that. So you could tell a library staffer, I'm in the mood for a mystery, and then they'd disappear into the back room and grab, like, a random Agatha Christie or P.D. James or something for the closed stacks. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how it worked. And the first five libraries that Carnegie built actually operated this way, too. But then Carnegie began to notice the closed deck system had a few problems. So for one thing, it was clunky. Mm -hmm. Employees were constantly bustling back and forth to fetch books, and more workers had to be hired to keep up, which would cause operating costs to increase. But the even bigger problem was that the closed stacks made the library feel, you know, really impersonal, I guess. Yeah, so I I was just thinking, it must have been hard for a librarian to get a sense of what kind of book you'd like when there's this massive line of people behind you who also want to borrow something. Well, plus there was no chance of discovering a book you'd like on your own. I mean, it was all left up to fate and the librarian, I guess. But, you know, Carnegie decided to change that. He started using an open stacks policy in all of his libraries, allowing patrons to browse the shelves for the very first time. So pretty soon, non-Carnegie libraries all over the country switched to open stacks, too. You know, I'm listening to you describe the shift to self-service libraries, and I just keep thinking back on that idea of the library as a third place. You know, this accessible space that's open to everyone. And it sounds like this open stacks policy really helped bring that idea to fruition. And what's really exciting now is looking around and seeing all the ways librarians are picking up on that concept and just running with it. So what do you mean by that? You want to give a few examples? Yeah. So one thing is that some libraries have begun offering self-publishing and print-on-demand services, like the uh, Sacramento Public Library. They, they've got this community program called iStreet Press, and it revolves around one of those really cool espresso book machines. Those are kind of like those, like the all-in-one book robots, right? Exactly. It kind of looks like a copy machine, but it can actually print, bind, and trim a complete paperback in three to five minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so one way the library uses it is to supplement their in-house book collection. The machine is connected to this database of about three million titles that are either out of print or backlisted, so people can actually print their own copies if they're unable to find them anywhere else. That's pretty awesome, but it doesn't seem all that community-driven, though. Well, that's the other thing the library uses it for. So they offer these free writing and publishing classes where people can come and learn about the craft of writing and get a sense of whether they'd like to self-publish a book on their own. Then if someone writes and designs their own book, they can print out as many copies as they want right there in the library. And this is the coolest part. If someone donates a copy to their book to the library, it actually gets added to the local author section and can even be requested by other libraries. Oh, that is pretty cool. And I know that'd be a lot of fun for writers to be able to see their their own work in a library's collection. But all right, so what about for libraries that can't afford their own bookmaking robots? I was looking at the cost. I mean, these things are over $100,000, aren't they? 
Yeah, they are pretty pricey. And that library only has one because it requested the funds by writing for a special grant. But don't worry, there are lots of unusual community programs and services that even the thriftiest of libraries could adopt. So um, take, for example, the four branches of the Queens Library in New York. They operate a new lending system called the Tiberi, where patrons can check out neckties for up to three weeks at a time. <laughs> the idea spun out of the fact that 62% of local libraries already offer online career and job-related services. I mean, people have been coming to the libraries to job hunt online for years now, so why not make sure they have something stylish to wear when they actually land that job interview? That's pretty neat, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, Although the only problem is they, they then have to figure out how to tie the tie, right? <laughs> well, the Queen's Library has you covered there, too. All the ties, which are donated by the public, are distributed in these little boxes that also include this illustrated guide for how to tie a half wins or not. And there's also tips for uh, how to nail an interview just in case you need some extra pointers. Wow, I guess, I mean, they've they've thought of everything. Yeah, surprise, librarians are really smart. (laughs) And long-suffering on on a slightly different (laughs) topic. I don't know if you've uh, seen this Tumblr called I Work at a Public Library where librarians share some of their favorite stories. Mm -mm, I haven't. What is it? So it's this long-running collection of photos and anecdotes submitted by these war-weary librarians. And it's been going since like 2008, I think. And there's something like 60 pages of stories at this point. And they all offer this pretty hilarious look into the weird stuff librarians have to deal with. Probably one of my favorites is this one where a librarian comes across a guy lying flat on his back in the History of Europe section of their library. And after asking if he's all right, the guy responds, I'm just contemplating life, but I understand if you need me to get off the floor. (laughs) Then according to the librarian, he willingly and with no further persuasion gets up and moves to a chair. That's amazing. And and see, you said it was off topic, but there's that open communication and sense of community we've been talking about right there. Right. If you say so, (laughs) thanks for making it connect. Yeah, but sadly, there are also times when the community just can't help you out and a person has to make his way alone. It's time for the fact off. Oh, wow. That's some trash talking right there. Um, but I know as we got into our research for this episode, we kept talking about some of the non-book things we'd heard libraries were lending. So why don't we focus on those today? All right, let's see what I've got here first. Okay, well, if you've ever thought about trying out surfing but didn't want to invest in your own board or for the price of renting one... You can just head over to the Inverloch Library in Victoria, Australia to check out the one they keep on hand for the locals. That's awesome. Uh, bringing it back to this hemisphere, I, I think it's pretty great that there are now more than 100 libraries in the U.S. with 3D printers that library guests can use. And for many of them, you actually have to take a couple hour safety course first, which does seem reasonable to me. This time of year, you'll find guests making Christmas ornaments, but you'll also find students making models for school projects and other stuff that's pretty cool. Well, I think it's pretty funny that the Aurora Public Library in Illinois allows you to rent one of their 30 sculptures for a couple months. <laughs> so what do you do with them? You just make your house or your office look all fancy, I guess. <laughs> I don't know where they came from. Well, another thing you could check out that may seem a little more useful is one of the many kitchen tools available in several libraries now. So blenders, mixers, and my favorite... Coventry Public Library in Rhode Island offers more than 50 different cake pans. Oh, wow. There's even a SpongeBob one. I, I'm <laughs> not sure if it makes kids dumber like the show does, as we learned in our Mr. Rogers episode last uh, week. We have to test that out with our own kids, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, back to the third place idea we talked about earlier. There are more than 300 libraries in the U.S. that have these little seed libraries you know, for growing vegetables and flowers. And 
You may be wondering how this works since you wouldn't think you could bring those seeds back. But they do invite guests to save their own seeds and donate them back to the library for others to use. I think it's pretty wild that some libraries are starting to involve dogs in their library activities. So some use them to encourage children to read by spending some quiet time reading to a therapy dog. And the Yale University Law Library has provided a dog for uh, stressed out law students to hang out with while they study. Hmm. Who knew you could check out a dog? That really is pretty cool. So I, I think I have to give it to you, Mango. Congratulations. You win the fact off. Oh, thanks so much. I'm so honored. Well, that's it for today's episode. Honestly, there were too many great facts and stories about libraries to fit them all into one episode. So if you have any favorites you feel like we should have mentioned, let us know. You can email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. It is still 24-7, right, Mango? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I can't believe we keep it going that long. <laughs> but we love hearing from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.